I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Rise of Skywalker Revisited. I'm not going to play you the trailer, any trailer for Rise of Skywalker. Let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Think about how this made you feel. Right, it has been three years since uh, The Rise of Skywalker when uh, I got a taste of what it had been like for the past couple of uh, Star Wars episodes for a bunch of the people who really, really wanted them to go differently and weren't necessarily massive racists or uh, misogynists. Significantly, one of the reasons I wanted Rise of Skywalker to be different was because I didn't want it to just be Return of the Jedi. Mm. We'd already flipped that shit with the second half of The Last Jedi. The idea being we've actually kind of speed run through a whole new trilogy in two films. So the way is now open for them to re the, for the new generation to redefine themselves. So while a lot of uh, folks were furious that Luke Skywalker never got to be the benevolent Jedi Master they wanted him to be, and now they're kind of stuck with a digital gonk in uh, the Mandalorian shows, I was pissed off because I felt that Rey and Finn and Poe and Rose deserved better. And I haven't... I think we've watched it one more time on Blu-ray since then. Uh, and if you remember in the cinema, you and Willow both liked it. And I went away from it thinking, hmm. And then it bugged me more and more the more I thought about it and the more I looked at the actual pressure points of what was happening, what was being said. And I put a lot of the blame on the writer Chris Terrio, who uh, penned Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Justice League, the uh, Joss Whedon, and indeed the Snyder version. And it, it baffled me that uh, after Colin Trevorrow exited the project as both writer and director, and everything he'd written was scrapped, good by the way, because if you go back and watch Jurassic World from 2014, it feels like 
Lucasfilm figured they could get a billion dollar hit out of Colin Trevorrow relaunching another big vintage franchise. And they didn't think about the fact that Jurassic World was hollow and cynical and filled with nothing. We've caught wind of what was in Trevorrow's original script and it's not very satisfying either. So I'm not lamenting that Trevorrow wasn't there. A freak show hawker beckons them to a curtains booth. Well, that took a turn. I want her to go in and see Kylo Ren and his new master walking on his hands. We realize this is the apprenticeship he was taking on. They walk among the oddities and wonders undercover. Ray's colorful sari gives her an exotic elegance we've never seen. Wow, what a low-key burn against Ray. Also, I kind of thought the freak show was going to seg into some kind of new plot development, but it turned out to just be them earnestly enjoying a freak show. You've been here before? With my grandfather. I used to sail right out there. You've never seen so many lights. He eyes her. What do you remember? Ray digs for a memory before her abandonment. My father and I would build starships out of wood. They could fit in your hand. That's a cute detail. Anything else? I remember love. That's why I waited so long. Doubt creeps in. But I must have imagined it. They were no one. Wait, what? He really stumbled across the finish line in that scene. It reminds me of Chris Terrio's bizarre remarks in interviews when he was acting like the reason Rey was upset about the revelation about her parents in The Last Jedi was because they were no one and not because they were drunks and didn't love her and sold her, but just because they weren't famous. In this backstory, she apparently has fond memories of whittling tiny boats with her father, but since he's not a character who appeared in the prequels or the expanded universe books, I guess it doesn't count. Poe looks at her in the setting sunlight, wishing he could change the past for her, but unable. No one is no one. Ray takes that in. Then she spots a trio of mech troopers scanning the crowd ahead. Poe follows her eyes, puts his hand on his blaster. Ray, no. She pulls Poe into a market stall, eyeing them through the hanging cloth. The mech trooper moves in their direction. Ray grabs Poe by the shirt and pulls him into a kiss, hiding his face behind her headscarf. The mech trooper sees the two lovers from afar while the Utai women applaud in the background. He moves on. Okay, I cannot believe in the year of our Lord 2020, well, actually, no, I guess, okay, the cover page said this was written in 2016. I cannot believe in the year of our Lord 2016 that we are using this trope where two people kiss because they don't want to be noticed. I feel like the kissing to escape notice thing is so old, it can really only happen in cases of self-parody. Actually, I wish Trevorrow had just used this in the Jurassic World franchise instead. Like Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard are running from a velociraptor and they hide in a closet and then it's like moving through the halls looking for them, it's sniffing around, and then it rounds the corner and it sees them in a passionate kiss and it like makes a gesture of embarrassment and backs away like, oh, I didn't realize. Ray and Poe pull apart. He takes a moment to recover. He's never kissed a Jedi. Ah. Ray, did it work? Poe, I mean, I think so. Ray looks past him at the mech troopers walking away. Poe, oh, so that wasn't Ray lying. No, I like how it has to outright tell us that she's lying instead of having nuance. Also, how is she lying? Like, whether or not she actually likes him, the stormtroopers were definitely the catalyst for that. They eye each other, wishing the force could stop time. 
Oh my god. They go to the Force-sensitive lady, whose name is Nomi, to find out about how to get to Mortis. It's all kind of tedious, so I'm going to skip it. But we get a prophecy, so I guess I'd better read that part out loud. There the two will meet, drawn together by the Force. Two thrones in the rock, the dark side and the light. There she will make the sacrifice. I feel like this is the prophecy version of a horoscope. It's so vague that not only is it not particularly helpful, but it's also not impressive if it comes true. I think this force sensitive just did a cold read on Ray and is familiar with Mortis and that it has thrones. She's like, bingo, I'm getting paid today. Wait, what? What do you mean sacrifice? No me. The Jedi must go alone. No, hold on a second. We're not leaving. What did she see? Teray, what did you see? Nomi, the Jedi will make the journey. The journey will answer the question. The journey will answer the question. This isn't even a horoscope anymore. This is like fortune cookie tier. Ray, is there another path? Nomi looks at Ray with wide, unreadable eyes. There is always another path. Oh, good. So the prophecy, which is so vague it could come true from any number of different outcomes, is also not guaranteed to come true. Will you forgive me if I really skim over the B-plot about the Jedi transmitter? I'm only like halfway through this screenplay. Exterior, Remnicor, Night. Thank you to Jenny Nicholson there who read the entire Colin Trevorrow screenplay. I recommend this two-hour video especially in case you're laboring under the delusion that Trevorrow is some kind of Billy Wilder and we lost the Shawshank Redemption of Star Wars movies. But nice reference to Nomi Sunrider there, that would make the EU fans happy, even if her character is an irritating fortune teller. Uh, it feels like this film was doomed from the start since they hired him, and then after he was summarily let go for being a prat and they were on a clock, they had to scrabble to throw something together, and the actual final film was a series of set pieces and concept art of action sequences that they cobbled together into a MacGuffin hunt, which is not at all interesting. People don't care about MacGuffins, and there is a certain breakneck pace to it, and people keep saying stupid things. So again, it makes it really easy to blame Chris Terrio because it's like, dude, you do not get anything about the previous two films. And J.J., you should have fucking stopped him. He's credited as a co-writer. But then J.J. Abrams is also responsible for the screenplay for File Effects the Movie, or in America, Taking Care of Business. Meet Jimmy Dworsky, a professional thief who's stolen Spencer's identity. Hi, Spencer Barnes. Hey, Spencer Barnes? Yeah, it's me. He's moved into Spencer's house. Wow. I'm on Dynasty. Taking over his job. Are you familiar with high quality products? Your oatmeal stinks. Tastes like dirt. He's dated his girl. Ah. Want to join me? Ah. Sure. Yeah! And ruined his life. This is a disaster. <laughs> as well as regarding Henry, where Harrison Ford gets shot. Does he just hate Harrison Ford? <laughs> And he, he loses his uh, memory of his family and has to kind of rehabilitate to that. Uh, and also a, a film called Superman Flyby, which never got made, but by all rights was a terrible script. J.J. is not a writer. He is really good at making high-energy emotional films. He's a great actor's director. He really brings out humane performances. That's his gift. That and kineticism. Okay, so you didn't get um, Colin Trevorrow as you'd hoped. Uh, well, okay, how about Ryan Johnson? 
And it feels like the reason they didn't get Ryan Johnson, because Lucasfilm were purposefully reacting to all of the hatred, mm. the burning, seething hatred for The Last Jedi. I didn't get to see him go out. But it was he was just meant no and off screen. He was on there somewhere, but the explosion filled it up so fast I couldn't fucking see Admiral Akbar go out. So my boy Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. No, but Leia gets jettisoned from the fucking home too, I'll call it ship, because it's a larger cruiser. It's like their last remaining cruiser. Freezes. And freezes and literally she's dead. She literally dies. There's no way you're breathing. So she dies, but yet she's able to to hand wave her fingers a little bit, and then and then Superman. she flies back into the bridge, uh, knocks on the heats door, her body up, <laughs> knocks on the yeah, door. She just yeah, she, she does in. casually puts her hand on the door, and we're like, okay, well, what the fuck? Because I was like, okay, so that's how they killed Leia, and I was ready to accept it. I was like, ah, okay, I I see. And it's a it's a sacrifice, and she was leading the last ships, the last remaining ships of the resistance. But they bring her back. But she was in space, so they get, she gets sucked out. Okay, they open the door. She has no training. Why why aren't those guys sucked out? Or maybe Luke did train her. Once they open the door, to let her back in. Oh, uh, because the, the shields, shield, shield stabilizers. Shield. Duh. Have you ever watched Star Trek? But, but, uh, and they were like, well, we can't get this guy who wrote the Last Jedi to write the final film. You know, like. Lawrence Kasdan wrote the final Star Wars film. Uh, so we'll just get Chris Terrio in instead. I just, I don't see what, like, why would you go for the guy who bungled Justice League twice and made people go, nope, don't like that, twice? I don't, I don't get that. Was no one else available? You theorized that JJ was like, right, I'll get a moron that way if it sucks. <laughs> They'll blame They'll him, blame not him. me. They blame you, Jage. They will always blame you. You're the director. Mm. You choose this shit. Also, they hate you already for what you do. They hate you for the promising things that there's actually nothing inside the mystery box. Again, I'm kind of okay with there being nothing inside the mystery box and somebody smart coming up with, but what is inside the mystery box? Let's have a think. And that was not Chris Terrio. Long time ago, in the mists of uh, uh, antiquity, Chris Terrio did win an Oscar for adapting the book Argo into the film Argo, but his skills are not on display here. However, while we haven't rewatched it, I went looking for fan edits recently to see if anyone had done something substantial with this. If you go to fanedit.com, you'll find a lot of re-edits of The Last Jedi, where they take out the stuff they hate. There's an anti-cringe cut that removes all the humor. Fleet, I have an urgent communique for General Hux. Patch him through. This is General Hux of the First Order. The Republic is no more. Your fleet are rebel scum and war criminals. Tell your precious princess there will be no terms. There will be no surrender. Hi, I'm holding for General Hux. This is Hux. You and your friends are doomed. We will wipe your filth from the galaxy. Okay, I'll hold. Hello? Hello? Yep, I'm still here. Can you... can he hear me? Hux? He can. With an H, skinny guy, kind of pasty. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Look, I can't hold forever. If you reach him, 
Tell him Leia has an urgent message for him. I believe he's tooling with you, sir. About his mother. Star Wars should never be fun. Took out all those bits with the girl, Ray. Took out all of those bits with the Vietnamese girl, Rose. The one so important and integral to the story and the themes of the story that John Williams gave her her own leitmotif. And yeah, you get some really uncomfortable kind of like, I don't want to be here and you feel slimy. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and did you notice how she was pretty fucking good all of a sudden at swinging the thing when we just finished watching Force Awakens she's where and she's good. not a, a proficient yeah, combat fighter. And all of a sudden she was. So did we miss some actual training as lesson one that Luke gave her maybe? That's the only explanation. For more context, what we did was uh, an entire Infinity Saga watch-along with the Discord, where we watched all of the films in a slightly rearranged order, mostly chronologically in, on, on my part. So that was a real trip, because I, I wanted to re-experience why did we care about these in the first place. They weren't mediocre back then, were they? Tony, you fought him. Who told you that? You fought him. No, he wiped my face with a planet while the Bleecker Street magician gave away the store. That's what happened. There's no fight. Okay. He's, not, he's not beatable. Did he give you any clues? Any coordinates? Anything? Uh, I saw this come a few years back. I had a vision. I didn't want to believe it. I thought I was dreaming. Tony, I'm going to need you to focus. And I needed you. As in past tense. That trumps what you need. It's too late, buddy. Sorry. You know what I need? I need a shave. And I believe I remember telling... Tony, oh, yes. Tony, Tony. Live and otherwise, that what we needed was a suit of armor around the world. Remember that? Whether it impacted our precious freedoms or not. That's what we needed. Well, that didn't work out, did it? I said we'd lose. You said, we'll do that together, too. And guess what, Cap? We lost. And you weren't there. But that's what we do, right? Our best work after the fact, we're the Avengers. We're the Avengers, not the pre-Avengers. Okay. Right? You made your point. Just sit down, okay? okay? No, no, here's my point. You Tell know what? Just sit, great, sit down. We need Love you. Your new blood. A bunch of tired old mules. I got nothing for you, Cap. I got no coordinates, no clues, no strategies, no options, zero, zip, nada. No trust. Fire. Here, take this. You find him, you put that on, you hide. Tony, fine. And no, they weren't. Those are some really great films. Some of them are just sort of, ugh, but they really are in the vast, vast minority. And there is a very strong backbone to the Infinity Saga that seemed to just disappear and turn to jelly as soon as the Russo brothers, Marcus and McFeely, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson, and Alan Silvestri 
all seemed to leave Marvel at exactly the same time at Endgame because Endgame was actually the end mm. and all of phase four and five so far has been it's just a little not successful it's still good it's still good so that was great but we had five days left at the end of the month we'd lost a few because uh, I had to take a couple we had to take a couple off uh, but so I figured okay before we get on to the next month which is February we are now currently in the middle of this we're watching all the superhero films that aren't Marvel or DC, which the Discord folks on there managed to put together quite a compelling list. But I wanted to see if the five Star Wars films that I considered to actually be of a kind really work together. And those are Star Wars 1977, The Empire Strikes Back 1980, Return of the Jedi 1983, and this was the opportunity to watch the original cuts, The Force Awakens 2015, and The Last Jedi 2017. Because I maintained that those five together form a trilogy, and then a new story, a new path, an echo of that trilogy, but also changing things. Because at the end of The Last Jedi, it's like, okay, so the First Order are still around. And it's like, well, yeah, because we don't necessarily have to kill the Emperor. And then that's it. That's okay. The entire fleet just goes, whoop, I guess we surrender. And the day is entirely saved. Like, it's going to be harder than that. This takes work. And you know, a couple of people were like, we respectfully disagree and think that this really should have had an ending. So I went and looked for a really good version of Rise of Skywalker, wishful thinking. But I found one. like okay this is looking really promising it was an edit originally by hal 9000 who made rise of skywalker ascendant and this was a major collaborative effort on the part of multiple editors and bedroom fx creators from originaltrilogy.com so you've got little contributions and little bits that have been worked on here and there by Skinara, Sir Ridley, Poppaschetti, John H., Snooker, Coolfish, Bourbon, Luke Frick, Rogue Leader, Captain Faraday, Cinefy, This Is Creation, Never Are Great, Jar Jar Bricks, Dominic Cobb, and Movies Remastered. And there were more people besides them as well, providing voices, tweaks, colour correction, continuity fixes that even Lucasfilm didn't notice. So a lot of people worked on this HAL 9000 edit, Rise of Skywalker, Ascendant. And then that was taken by a uh, fan editor named Spence who made The Final Order. 
one of the reasons for the name change being Rey doesn't say her name is Skywalker at the end, which alludes to the Jedi Order, the Order of the Sith, and all of Palpatine's Order 66. So one assumes he's got all kinds of numbers to give to his fleet of solid gold Death Stars. Or also an allusion to The Last Command, where in the Timothy Zahn book, The Last Command that was given to Mara Jade, that George Lucas loves, uh, by uh, Emperor Palpatine as he was falling down the shaft was, KILL LUKE SKYWALKER! <laughs> <laughs> And at the beginning, obviously, he says to Kylo Ren, kill Rey! What was I saying? Ah, yes, that's when I buried 10,000 Star Destroyers under the ice. Who built them? Better yet, who will fly them? Ice zombies? That's when we started mass-producing ice zombies. Who staffed the ice zombie machines? That's for another trilogy. I was also Snoke. Now, back to the plan. You despise me, and with your hatred... Despise you? We have no relationship whatsoever. For the plan to work, you really need to hate me. So we watched this collaborative edit together, and I was like, oh my god. This group has addressed almost everything it doesn't make this film fantastic but it gets the annoyingly stupid bits of the film and the poorly implemented ideas and just snips them to the side smooths out the corners so i went and did my own edit of spencer's edit of hell 9000's edit of marianne brandon and stefan grube's edit of jj abrams film the Rise of Skywalker. And you would think from that that it's a too many cooks spoil the broth scenario, but it's actually the opposite. The broth is so much better now. Now what I'm gonna do is read what's different about this one and why I now like this version of this story. It's not actually radically all that different. It still fits in continuity. And down the line, if there's anything that's wildly important, we can always reincorporate that and do another pass, edit, edit. Here was Spence's ethos on his version of the HAL 9000 edit. Leia needs to not be involved in the plot. Her sloppily worked in deleted scenes from The Force Awakens don't fit, have no purpose, and completely take over the story of Rey and Kylo. I love Carrie Fisher and Princess Leia, but they should have just let her rest. When I read that before, I was like, oh God, you're erasing Leia. I was equating it with all the people going, I can't stand it when she flies through space like Mary Poppins. I love the Leia surviving in space because she's got the fucking force. I love that sequence. And I was crying in the cinema and every single time it gets to me. But this, I was like, okay, so I wonder what that does to the actual story. And she dies really early on. It's one of the first things. And it's actually better.
I've seen some Last Jedi edits that erase Leia from the movie after she gets flushed into space and just have her die there. But that eradicates some of the absolute best Carrie Fisher performances in Star Wars history from the rest of that movie. And she was actually there. That is not what was done here. I know what you're gonna say. I changed my hair. It's nice that way. Leia. I'm sorry. I know. I know you are. I'm just glad you're here. At the end. I came to face him, Leia. I can't save him. I held out hope for so long, but... I know my son's gone. No one's ever really gone. We don't get that squeamish feeling of that's not actually Carrie saying like in the making of they talk about how they aren't working Carrie into the film they're building scenes around what they have left of Carrie Fisher there's some lovely uh, context given by Billy Lord her daughter uh, of like her involvement to the point where uh, when that scene with the digital gonk Leia is fighting the digital gonk Luke the actual body of Leia when she takes up her mask is uh, Carrie Fisher's daughter Billy Lord which is wonderful so I don't mind that bit and that can stay but yeah they stretched too hard to accommodate specifically Carrie Fisher and rather than following on I think what Leia would have said with the character of Maz Kanata who was right there with Lupita Nyong'o one of the greatest actresses we have going today to explain to a distraught Ray here is how Leia would have wanted maybe wanted you to conduct yourself mm. instead we have a strained relationship between the real life living and breathing flesh and blood Daisy Ridley's Ray and the digital ghost of Carrie Fisher yeah. who I'm sure would have approved of being important in this film but probably would also have said let the kid go do what she needs to do I, I do think they went too far in terms of trying to stretch out what they had to fill the space that that she left ultimately you cannot fill the space that she left it's just it's not going to happen yeah. so using maybe a handful of those scenes just to have her there in the background to maintain a presence but not to try and forcibly insert her into the actual story load bearing plot 
that I probably would have been much more comfortable with. I do think that you're absolutely right. The the best version of this would be that Mars takes over from her. We know she has a pre-existing relationship with Han. It is reasonable to assume that she has a pre-existing relationship with Leia as well. Yeah. And she is right there. She's the one who is present and bears witness when Leia's body goes to the Force. Yeah. So it, it's not as if that presence is is something that would be that wouldn't feel right. However, how it's been done in this version it did feel much more real. clean. Clean, yeah, but but it felt more real. It felt more like this is is it's you almost You find like out I, that someone you care about has died after the fact absolutely, as opposed to Absolutely. And yeah. and being able to give her up early on in the film mm. It felt more in keeping with giving Carrie up before the film was complete. Yeah, at an, a very inconvenient moment, as opposed to they replaced the point of her death in the film originally to a very convenient point where she could intervene with the fight. Yeah. And it really does then give that sense of the kids have no guidance yeah. and they they feel... They've blown in the wind. They've got nobody to tell them what to do. Even Holdo is gone. Yeah. And that makes Lando's appearance, when he turns up, that much more powerful. Because it's like, okay, this is the last remaining thread we've got left to our our forebears who did this shit before us. We've got a grampy. We hang on to that grampy for dear life. Everybody form a protective ring around Billy D. Williams. Yeah. So the short of it is, when we meet Ray just after her training montage, rather than going to meet Leia and discuss the lightsaber, she senses Leia passing. And we cut to that footage that they used at the end of Act 2. It's now here. Chewbacca is informed about it and grieves loudly and immediately. And we feel that as our opening, not as the preliminary to going to face Palpatine. Clearly they wanted Leia to feel important, so they twinned her death with Ben being brought back, which is well-intentioned. But if you remove it, Ben being brought back stems from Ben and Ray. Oh, something's happened. Just can't wait. We've got to see General. She's gone. The second core idea from Spencer, Rey cannot be a Palpatine. The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi set up a completely different arc for her. In those movies, it's about her being a nobody with tremendous power that doesn't belong in this story. She's figuring out what her place is. In The Rise of Skywalker, the plot is almost completely based around her lineage. I know a lot of people don't like that she's just nobody, but the solution is not to eliminate two movies worth of character and plot development to change it to something completely different. I agree with this completely. The, the first two films, there's a real sense of Ray trying to find and forge her own path in the theatrical version of Rise of Skywalker it's like the script writers are frantically sort of putting the path in front of her building these stepping stones for her 
um, which means that a lot of her impetus is lost. Tenet number three. Rey cannot at every turn be assisted by other Star Wars characters, specifically other older Star Wars characters. She defeats Kylo because Leia intervenes in the original movie. She defeats Palpatine because the spirits of the past Jedi intervene. Rey's the hero. She needs to do it herself. Uh, it's more than that as well. Like they're about to get jumped by one stormtrooper, and then Lando shoots him with a crossbow. And yeah, by this third one, they do need to be able to move on without that lineage. Like if you're gonna change things up for this third movie, it can't just be. And then the Grampies all help you yeah. out. The fact that Lando goes off and then becomes their connection to the rest of the galaxy—that's mm. that's okay. That's fine. Should have been with Rose. Lando and Rose traveling to different planets, begging them to help. I would far rather that than speeder bike chases and all of the all of the crap and the gubbins and the running around with the first order blasting them. It's like we've seen it. It's been done well in other films. And because they're going, hey, remember this? And trying to get us nostalgic for previous films is like at this point, don't do the nostalgia thing. We're beyond that now. We've got a new generation interested in Star Wars. Can we do something with that? Remember all those great films when Carrie Fisher was alive? Hmm. Don't do that. Tenant number four. How does that create focus? Well, because the movie is now about Kylo being pushed to the light and Rey being pulled to the dark. They are both on the brink of their respective breakthroughs. Kylo feels remorse for killing Han and he feels the loss of his mother. He definitely feels something for Rey. The light is trying to grab him now more than ever and he is fighting as hard as he ever has. Kylo is less of a dick. Ben is less of a dick in this than he was in the theatrical version where he's just, he's being mean and cruel and and just saying really like shallow things he's backslid hard and now he feels like a petulant teenager in this new version because leia dies early and then we cut to an artfully reused deleted moment from the last jedi when ben is standing on the bridge of a star destroyer mask off staring out into space there's a kuleshov effect which is where an editor can draw up a relationship between two or more shots when used in montage. So, for example, you get a single slow-mo shot of a man losing a huge amount of money in Las Vegas, and then a shot of the same guy slumped in the street. Our minds tell that story, even if the second shot actually came way earlier in his life. And with Ben here, thanks to the expressiveness of Adam Driver's face and all the performance he's turned in so far, the Kuleshov effect suggests he is feeling Leia die, so this is still massively contributory towards his self-motivated push to the light. But first up comes his most reliable emotion, anger. So, I've moved the Kylo Ren, like, carving up Sith troopers on Mustafar at the beginning. That follows immediately after Leia's death. So, it f you know when Loki blows his room apart in, uh, in Thor The Dark World? Now, Kylo's just fucking... Argh! Just... It actually makes sense that Leia's death would start nudging him towards the light. And rather than it being a sudden turn in the middle of the movie, and then for all of Act 3, he doesn't say anything, but suddenly he's good now. Obviously, the, the Han talk, which all took place in his head anyway. That makes his determination, as in Kylo Ren's determination, to resist the pull back to the light side make a lot more sense because the amount of... Uh, human connection, Ben's human connection that he has thrown away in pursuit of the power that the dark side promised him 
at this point, he's it's almost like he's given up on the idea that that power is really there. But at the same time, he doesn't want to let go of it because otherwise he did it all for nothing. Yeah. Yeah, you want to talk about becoming a victim of the sunk costs fallacy, I give you the dark side of the force. Forgive me. I feel it again. The pull to the light. Supreme Leader senses it. Show me again the power of the darkness. And I will let nothing stand in our way. Show me. Grandfather. And I will finish what you started. And similarly, while uh, Ben is less of a dick, Ray is surrounded by a bit less silliness. Not every dramatic beat is undercut with ads, all right. Mm. And not every hurt visited upon her is immediately soothed. And she starts to really seem like, because Daisy Ridley's performance is incredibly intense, you just use what's there to convey that sense of panic as she's starting to slip and slide down this dark side slope. Mm. And without the whole, you're a Palpatine, it's in your blood, it becomes a case of, yes, but look at my actions, look at who I actually am. It's less about, well, if I'm a Palpatine, I guess I must be evil. Ugh. There's, she was going through a lot as well when they filmed this. She was dealing with the fact that people were not overly thrilled. Some people were not overly thrilled with her previous performances. And um, I'm not sure on the timeline, but she had a stalker at one point, which made her feel really rough about the whole being famous thing. Mm-hmm. Kelly Marie Tran, however, was bullied entirely off of social media. I'm fairly certain that uh, Daisy also took Daisy a step really back. Daisy really quit social media for a while as well. I, I don't even know if she's gone back. To I would not see any major reason to. Nope. You want to keep your profile up, yes, but at what cost? That's what your agent does for you now, folks. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, 12% to take the hits. New additions added by Spence include a colour correction. There's a green tinge to the overall movie. And rebalancing the red-blue-green sliders means your whites can be white, which is kind of important for Star Wars. This has now been rebalanced. Also, because it's now called The Final Order, there's the opportunity for a brand new crawl. Now, the old opening crawl goes thusly. The dead speak. The galaxy has heard a mysterious broadcast, a threat of revenge in the sinister voice of the late Emperor Palpatine. General Leia Organa dispatches secret agents to gather intelligence while Rey, the last hope of the Jedi, trains for battle. See, she's training, okay? She's lifting rocks and all that stuff. She's lightsaber training. She's proving she's not a Mary Sue against the diabolical First Order. Meanwhile, Supreme Leader Kylo Ren rages in search of the Phantom Emperor, determined to destroy any threat to his power. The new opening crawl reads thus.
flames of rebellion burn across the galaxy, the tyrannical First Order has retaliated by attacking any planetary system that supports the Resistance. An ailing General Leia Organa helps Rey, the sole heir to the Jedi, continue training to harness her powerful connection to the Force. Meanwhile, Supreme Leader Kylo Ren has traveled to Mustafar, chasing whispers of a hidden power that would allow him to destroy any threat to his rule. So rather than, I'm going to go there and kill this Emperor, it's like, okay, so there's something on Exegol that can help him, which is the fleet. What I'm now just going to call the editing team, so that I don't give the wrong attribution, remove the line about Palpatine making Snoke, and the line about, every voice you've heard has been me. It's me, Austin! Oh, son of a bitch! What? It's me, Austin! It was me all along, Austin! It's that. It's that. In fact, it's not even that. That WWE storyline was planned. This is a retcon to appease Reddit. Oh, son of a bitch. Snoke was symbolically Palpatine, a wrinkled, pruny old bastard who wanted supreme power. But instead they were like, ah, secretly he was a puppet being puppeteered by Palpatine who knew everything and had all the powers. Do you know how fucking boring that got in the prequels? How he anticipated everything and had all the powers to repel all the Jedi. And not only was he great with lightning, he was a dab hand at the old lightsaber and doing backflips and shit. It's treason then. also replaced the vat of cloned Snokes, which I called the Bucketo Snokes, uh, with cloned Palpatines. The VFX was by Popaschetti, who definitely helped with the, the magic and recrafting here. They're just sort of floating Ian McDermid heads in a, in, a, in a tank, and you're like, oh, I guess he's probably got lots of different clones. That makes all kinds of sense. That way, Snoke is just, in Palpatine's eyes, a pretender to the throne. In our eyes, there are always men like you. Since I reordered the beginning of the movie, we now start with Poe and Finn's Millennium Falcon rush to get information. Popaschetti re-edited that lightspeed skipping sequence so that it's just a burst through an ice wall to get away, which I far prefer because it just started the film like so breakneck without that sense of blinding speed being attached to any kind of imperative. But for my version, I went one further and found the work of Job Willens, who took another deleted scene from Rise of Skywalker, where Finn and Rose are aboard an Imperial ship in disguise, and they're sneaking around very nervously, being pursued by Ralph Innocent as an evil Imperial. But it's not a shouting foot chase, it's uh, trying to get through a Nazi base in stolen uniforms without getting questioned and asked for papers. There's like, they're like really wide-eyed, like, come on, come on, come on, tension, tension, tension. They go into an elevator and Finn is just like, tap, 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 on the button, while Innocent's running at them. And this is intercut with footage of Poe racing to the rendezvous point without any of the footage of Finn on the Falcon. So again, the juxtaposition of this imagery and the Kuleshov effect form a little story in your head that was never part of either film. And clearly it's them getting the information rather than a weird little alien voiced by Mark Hamill that we don't get to see do anything. Also carefully edited out is Benicio Del Toro who was absolutely there in the elevator with them. You can actually see his shoulder at one point. I'm going to edit that out by just slightly widening the frame. But that changes the dynamic of this scene because Poe's racing, and it's like if they can just get out of here, Poe will get them away. And just as the elevator doors close, 
Elevator doors behind them open and a bunch of stormtroopers walk into the elevator and stand there as they move between floors. And you've got John Boyega's face like... And one stormtrooper starts to look at him. Is there a problem, soldier? FN-217? You don't remember me? I-26, induct camp, batch 8? Yeah, I remember you. I-26, please don't do this. I'm sorry, Airplane 2187. I know I'm not supposed to initiate contact with officers, but I never took you for captain material. Look at you! Captain! I mean, what a much better way to start this movie, with tension, as opposed to Millennium Falcon orgasm and I haven't even started eating my popcorn. Now this one I loved. The blue Skywalker lightsaber is now portrayed throughout the film with a somewhat cracked appearance, similar to Kylo Ren's, in order to build on the conclusion to The Last Jedi and reflect Rey's inner conflict. Visual effects by Cool Fish, Luke Frick, and Movies Remastered. They did a splendid job on this. So it's it's just the it's the standard blue lightsaber blade, but it's rather than the classic Skywalker family lightsaber sound, which always had that clean knight in shining armor vibe to it. What you get instead is this filthy biker. There's that audible crackle. There's an expulsion of gas, a sense of flame. Instability has been passed on from Ben to Ray, igniting her anger and frustration that she can't be the person she wanted to be. This makes it seem like Ray's that much closer to going over the edge. It's subtle, but it... And also, there's every reason in the world why that would actually be the case. It got broke. It got broke. And be, uh, by rage and resentment. Mm -hmm. And one assumes that all of the Jedi lightsaber repair shops also got shut down after Order 66. Yeah. And any port in a storm, if you can't get any other kyber crystals, you kind of have to gonna go with this one, which might explode in your hand. But it emphasizes the desperation. And it just it shows how damaged this lineage has become. And when I say lineage, this is nothing to do with bloodline. It's to do with taking up... The sword. Commonality throughout these nine films. This trio of trios within a trio. Trying to bring peace, and more often than not, fucking it up. It feels more dangerous. Mm. It means that the two lightsabers being hit against each other are both on the edge.
there's another connection between the two of them as well. Mm -hmm. So as a child, Ben was trained by Luke. Yes. Ray was desperate to be trained by Luke. Yes. Ray gets trained by Leia. As a child, Ben was desperate to be trained by Leia, but he wanted to stay with his mother. That was the starting point of all of his falling apart. Yeah, it was. They each got each other's teachers. But who else was there now that you've lost Han, Luke, and Leia? In the absence of Carrie Fisher, you have the very talented Adam Driver, and you can add all kinds of dimensionality to this villain. Instead, for the same reasons they brought in the digital gonk Luke in Mandalorian, because they don't have access to a 1989 Mark Hamill, their response isn't in writing, it isn't in character, and it isn't in performance. It's in pulling off a digital magic trick that, for me, is very hard to buy into. It was this way with Tarkin in Rogue One, it was definitely this way with Indiana Jones in The Dial of Destiny. They lent far too hard into trying to make work what they didn't have, and as a result, you actually feel Carrie Fisher's absence doubly so. Ironic, I know. Especially as she was a scriptwriter and a script doctor. She'd have taken the script off Chris Terrio and gone, give it here. I'll fix this shit for you. You go out and play. I'll bring mommy her cigarettes. And stay away from that Aaron Kruger. He's a bad kid. And hey, be gentle with that cat. I am. All this to say, Having Leia pass away at the beginning makes this film feel more honest, gives us more to build with, because they're no longer trying to pull off the magic trick. Okay, so we're at the Council of War. One of the bits people point to and say, these lines are terrible. We've decoded the intel from the First Order spy, and it confirms the worst. Somehow Palpatine returned. Wait, do we believe this? It cannot be. The Emperor is dead. Dark science. Cloning. Secrets only the Sith knew. Which screams of, write reason here later. Oh shit, we forgot to write a reason. Honestly, Palpatine should just have turned up while Tony Stark was in court and said, Look, it's me. I'm here. Deal with it. Let's move on. I just, I drop it. Alright, I'll drop it. This lines up with the fact that the poster for Rise of Skywalker, this is absolutely true, the Palpatine in the background of that one, the glowering eyes, that's a toy. It's a really good toy. But back in the before times, Drew Strutzen would have painted the actors in costume from photographs to really capture that exhilaration. Now they're like, that's oh, a toy, in it? Yeah, it's rich and bunly goodness. Do you remember when you lost your passion for this work? I bet the sculptor at Hot Toys making that Palpatine for Return of the Jedi didn't know he was making the principal image for the poster for Episode 9. But as I was saying, that infamously mimetic line said with eye-rolling conviction by poor Oscar Isaac, trammeled at every creative corner. Somehow... Palpatine is back. Instead of that, fairly ingeniously, and like, why didn't you frickin' do this in the movie? 
They play Fortnite, or rather they are there when that Fortnite announcement happens and Palpatine's head is in the sky proclaiming to the galaxy that he is back. They're watching it on a monitor. We don't see Fortnite, but we hear this announcement and it actually feels like it's part of the movie as opposed to a weird tie-in promotion with the most popular game of the hour. Wait, do we believe this? It cannot be. The Emperor is dead. He's been planning his revenge. His followers have been building something for years. The largest fleet the galaxy's ever known. He calls it the Final Order. The Emperor and his fleet have been hiding in the unknown regions on a world called Exegol. Exegol does not appear on any star chart, but legend describes it as the hidden world of the Sith. There are always whispers. It's holding to teach death. So Palpatine's been out there all this time, pulling the strings. If we want to stop him, we must find him. We must find Exegol. So there you go. It's not pretty, but it's efficient and less stupid. I personally took out the line about secrets only the Sith knew. I just, it's, it's got a stank on it now. Also, they're not secrets only the Sith knew. The Genosians were not Sith. Cloning, yep, yep. Oh, I, uh... They didn't even think they were working for the Sith. They thought they were working for the Republic. Cypher Dias told them about the cloning. Or something. Don't even get me started on Attack of the Clones. And where did the money come from? <coughs> Where's the Where's money, the money Palpatine? <laughs> Not on the rug, man. <laughs> that rug really tied the room together. So yeah, the, the introduction to that Council of War, which has Leia very carefully removed, is them watching the broadcast where it feels like, oh shit. And since you've now, like, I moved the Emperor sort of saying, go and kill her to just before that, it feels like they're kind of just catching up on what Kylo's now seen face to face. Mm. And Kylo has a vision separate from Rey's before reforging his mask, uh, better establishing his motivation for doing so by Dominic Cobbitz that he flashes back to... Take off that mask. Join me. <laughs> creature in a mask. Yes, I am. The way that that was done was in reference to a certain kind of Japanese restoration pottery where they put the pieces back together with liquid gold, only it was liquid red. So I, I kind of like the, the reforged Kylo mask as an indication of his backslide, but it feels a little like hit now in the context, like he's overreaching to try to get back into being the Darth Vader boy. Mm. Well, the, the point of and that... And it doesn't hold. Uh, the point of that particular art is to show where the thing has broken. The idea is that the damage should not be invisible. It's, it represents it. the the fact that breaking something changes it, even if you put it back together again. Mm. 
Even though. It's sometimes in a good way. Yeah. Now, this next one is a work of genius, and it's like, why was this not in the movie? It's right there. The puppet show, when they go to the the desert world where they're having an open-air festival, I forget the name of it, uh, now depicts Luke's feats at the Battle of Crate in The Last Jedi. There's a little kind of... like cardboard cutout shadow puppet giant whatever the name of the bigger than Atat walker is firing a firebolt at Luke and Luke repelling it and blowing up the Atat not actually what happened but you know he's a badass is the point is that the legend of the Skywalker is out there and it's spreading around as anathema to the terrorism of the First Order so I mean that's beautiful that was what the end of The Last Jedi was supposed to be, that the legend that Luke felt he could never live up to, Great Warrior, was actually working and was actually inspiring new kids. It's not about broom boy specifically. It's about broom boys and girls and everything in between everywhere. And this was Rogue Leader's handmade and filmed puppet elements influenced by designs from Captain Faraday and Cinefly. Popaschetti and Movies Remastered provided a clean backplate and This Is Creation provided a new vocal dub for the alien narrator. Brilliant. And it's seamless. I would watch this scene and go, I don't remember that being in there. That, that, was, that was fantastic. Okay, that, that bit was good. That actually wasn't in the movie. Fuck! For obvious reasons, the Ray, Ray who, what's your surname, exchange has been taken out. But it was crucial they left the bonding with this little kid in. She is saying, welcome. Her name is Nambigima. I'm Ray. The important aspect of this scenario, Ray's been a scavenger her whole life, and then after that, all she's known is war. What she gets to see here is joy and people coming together to celebrate something that's, you know, alive, as opposed to it's not just the force, it's not just not being under the boot heel of the empire or whatever, empire pretenders are uh, coming out of the woodwork. It's uh, it's life day, if you will. It kind of does have the force running through underneath it, though, like the river underneath the rocks. Yeah. But that's the thing that surrounds us and binds us. Regular people aren't necessarily aren't aware, aware of, of it on a conscious level, yeah. but it's there all the same. Indeed. But yeah, in in my cut as well, she is absolutely Ray from nowhere, and she isn't going to adopt the name Skywalker at the end just like that. Although that actually didn't bother me over much when I saw it at the cinema because it puts found family over sacred bloodlines. It's just that the found family name is the other sacred bloodline. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> that just it's seems like... like bad luck. <laughs> hey, what's your name? <laughs> Chewbacca what? (laughs) (laughs) Now, again, if a future really good film relies heavily on Rey being a Skywalker now and or having Palpatine's special blood in a way that taking out would make a good film weaker, we can always make a revision where it's either Rey Skywalker or somehow get the Palpatine thing. I'm somewhat inclined to to just sort of add one line while Palpatine's like trying to lightning her with granddaughter and then boom. (laughs) So she's like, oh, granddaughter. I should probably look into that in a better film. (laughs) All but one of those times when Finn runs around after Rey shouting nothing but Rey. 
have been trimmed away. Him just doing this with nothing else to say makes him seem extremely needy and like there's nothing for him to do which John Boyega must have felt like. Also remove that bit where Finn tells Rey something he never told her, while the heroes sink into the quicksand, as well as two subsequent references to it. That never gets followed up on. It doesn't, does it? It doesn't. Uh, I thought that it was, I have been having force flashes and I, can, I think I can move stuff with my mind, and Will thought that it's just, I love you, Rey. In that way, I like like you romantically, um, but they never it's really now resolve really it. Really, the time, Finn. The, the closest they've come to resolving it was in the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special, which isn't canon, but it showed Finn messing around with a lightsaber. Mm. Not voiced by John Boyega, of course not. He distanced himself from this whole thing. He did. It's really sad watching them say goodbye now because I'm like, Oscar Isaac ain't coming back. Boyega ain't coming back. My God. However, one thing I did notice was the practical work in this movie. There is so much practical that I didn't see because I was too busy grinding my teeth over stuff that was really annoying and stupid. Maz Kanada has gone from a CG creation that was actually really good to a practical creation that's quite good, but they don't really do much with her. Mm. They'd have been able to do way more with her if she'd been taking the uh, crone role. Yeah. But yeah, she's actually there and on screen. The giant sandworm thing under uh, underground is a multitude of different puppets all at once. You know, JJ went out of his way to go back to practical as much as possible, rather than all those CGI glops that you're going to get all over the uh, the prequel trilogy. This relies as much as possible on stuff that was actually there in camera on the day for the actors to work with. The um kids on the desert planet watching the puppet show are practical hand puppets yeah. a la the original Yoda Perfect. with an underground rig for the puppeteers to sit in. Yeah, the puppeteers were like, and they have to clear the scorpions out of this pit every day. And it's like, great. So like, I'm baking in the heat. My hand is up a puppet. They're filming me for the biggest film of the year, apart from Endgame. And there may be scorpions creeping in and I'm not allowed to react. <laughs> LMAO. Ray's vision is moved and tied to the strong dark energy of the dagger. Rather than just having visions, it's the dagger, and it reference uh, all references to her parents are removed, focusing the vision solely on Dark Ray and the Sith throne. That the, the tweaks that emphasise the power of the writing on the dagger and kind of eliminated that whole here, hold it up as long as you're standing on exactly the right spot, facing exactly the right direction, exactly the right time of day, yeah. exactly the right elevation. Yeah, you mean it was left there by one-eyed Willy. Yeah. Um, so the one thing that did strike me, Poe says at one point, maybe we can find another droid that's a bit more helpful um, that can translate it for us. So you're saying so I should re-edit this edit of where I talk about re-editing a re-edited re-edit. <laughs> Well, maybe. Um, when they go back to Babu Frick Babu to do Frick. the brain thing, they think that the dagger's been destroyed because of what happened with the transport that they thought that Chewie was on. Hmm. It exists now, only in my memory. Exactly. Thank you, and old at, lady from Titanic. Uh, but at that point, that means that C-3PO genuinely believes that his what's in his memory is now the only thing that's going to enable them to complete this mission. Then they find out that the dagger is still intact and they get it back. Initially, I was like, does that not make it a little bit like C-3PO made that sacrifice? Not for nothing, but 
it now wasn't necessary because now they have the dagger. But if the emphasis is on the fact that the the language on the dagger actually has a dark energy to it, mm. then it doesn't make it feel out of place because she C-3PO, still needs it when she's standing well, there. Yeah, there is that. But also C-3PO wouldn't want another droid to have to expose themselves to that darkness. Yeah. So, yeah, it removes all references to her parents. It focuses the vision. So, so no Jodie Comer in this film, sadly, even though she is credited at the end as Ray's mum, focusing the vision solely on Dark Ray and the Sith throne. It also isn't a map that is tied visually to the wreckage of the second Death Star many planets away and at least 15 years ago. Like, it's, it's, it's wreckage in a churning ocean. It will have moved. When you make maps... You make them around permanent fixtures. Yeah. Instead, Sith whispers. Have been added strategically to imply that the dagger mystically is guiding her to the Wayfinder, which makes more sense because she could still find it underwater. When Rey mentions her vision of seeing the Sith throne, she comments that she saw herself on it, making no reference to Kylo Ren, for greater consistency with her vision as seen by the audience and connection to her inner conflicts of identity. That was someone named Rogue Leader's idea. Here's one of my changes. In Rise of Skywalker, almost as soon as Chewbacca is apparently killed, we have that tragedy relieved with the reveal that he is alive and captive of the First Order. Oh my god, Chewie's dead! No, he's not. It's it's too much, too fast, too quick. I'm assuming test audience kids were so thrown by it that they were just crying in the aisles. And so the decision was, let's just relieve that as soon as possible. We'll just shoot some extra stuff and uh, it'll just say, he's fine, look at him. There is a happy medium. Yeah. Between I found it. 45 seconds of tension in the original Rise of Skywalker and the one year plus of tension between the end of Infinity War... And the beginning of Endgame. Spence removed the scene where they bring out Chewie altogether, and I reinserted it, but after a long and uneasy period with very little comedy to relieve it. So when Ray senses Chewie whilst on Kajimi, she's looking up at the ship, that's when we see him. You finally see the Falcon, and just seeing the Falcon get towed up to the uh, Star Destroyer, you're like, oh, uh, it's not lost. It's back. It's cool. Okay, so things might actually turn out like they're, they're, they they have this thing captive, but we know the heroes are going to get back to it, as opposed to, we can't see it, we don't know where it is. And then, at the exact point that Chewie roars so loudly that he blows poor Donald Gleason's hair aside, I cut back to Ray going, Chewie! And she hears General Pride, played by uh, Richard E. Grant, say, take him to detention block six. So it's like, okay, now we have a place to go to to get him back. So she's, it just, it's... A little bit of extra Jedi working there. So we get relieved at the same time as Rey is relieved. Otherwise, we know he's fine and she's upset. And we're just like, oh, but she doesn't know that everything's fine. That's not how tension's supposed to work. It's supposed to be, she doesn't know the bad thing's going to happen. Then you get tension. The other way around, you're just waiting for the characters to catch up with the good thing. But she got away. Under command of the Knights of Ren, we suffered losses. A transport was destroyed. I've seen the report. 
No, Legion General. There was another transport in the desert. It brought back a valuable prisoner. Prisoner? The beast used to fly with Han Solo. Take it to interrogation six. Chewie? What about him? He's on friendship. He's alive. What? How? He's alive. He must have been on a different transport. We gotta go get him. Your friend's on that sky trash? I guess he is. It only works out to about 12 minutes that you have to sit with that. From Ray destroying the transport to you, the audience, realizing that Chewie's alive. But in the original cut, it's like 12 seconds. I also trimmed that bit immediately afterwards when 3PO comes back from losing his memory in very chipper fashion. Like Mark Hamill said in the uh, making of, and now that, that presents all kinds of comedy possibilities for 3PO. And I'm like, do you know what we've had for eight and a half movies, loads of comedy with 3PO. Do you know what we haven't had? Drama. Like, we got a little bit of it in uh, Revenge of the Sith. And that's about it. And a little bit of it at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back when Luke is, oh dear, out in the snow and may not come back. Anthony Daniels is really pretty good at that. And the idea, like, they could have really made something of, like, I still think that uh, it should have been that once he goes into this mode, he's irretrievable and he shuts down and that's it. And we have to say goodbye to 3PO. And it feels like the reason they didn't was A, to not upset so many kids because they wanted this to be feel good. And B, because they want to keep using 3PO in all kinds of stuff. And when Anthony Daniels finally dies, I'm sure they've got a voice program to simulate him like they have for James Earl Jones. Whoever heard of a droid that Who really, really died. died? You can always bring, bring them back. back. I, it just feels like because they didn't have Carrie around, mm. and they didn't even have Peter Mayhew around anymore. He had fully handed the role of Chewbacca over. 3PO being the first character we saw in the original 1977 Star Wars, and who was also in The Phantom Menace, getting made by Anakin. I'm not even sure how that works. He just found him on a junk pile and claimed he made him. I'm practicing building droids. I know what. I'll start with a protocol droid. Yep. What? He can help my mother around the house, even though he can't lift anything. No. Do you understand what protocol means, Anakin? No, of course you don't. You're four. When the lizard people try to eat your eyeballs, he can tell you what they're saying. <laughs> yum, yum. He's saying your eyeballs are delicious. I got that! <clears throat> anyway, but yeah, I think 3PO should just have been like, shut down. Now, I could have cut out the, any other bits with him later in the film to sort of imply that, but eventually I, I had to accept there is no moment of them going, goodbye 3PO, and just looking at him having shut down. There's no... What a moment that would have been. We all would have wept, but we'd have known he died for a good reason. God's sake. The value, the value of a character sacrificing themselves. Because that makes us feel like we could be that brave and that selfless. There is immense power to that. Either way, I made it so that 3PO lives, but 
R2 doesn't just give him back all his memories. He's just like, oh, R2-D2, I suppose we are to be friends in a kind of a R2 going, we've been doing this for fucking 70 years now. Oh, hello. I am C-3PO, human cyborg relations. And you are? What? Well, I'm quite certain I would remember if I had a best friend. I guess we'll just start over again. It has happened to him before. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. At the end of uh, 3, 3PO gets blanked. But yeah, I, I'm really into the idea of memory and what this entails. That taking away the memories of episodes 4, 5, 6, 7 and 8, so far of 9, and the intervening 35 years, that's a lot. That's a lifetime. Mm. Somebody said in the making of, I can't remember whether it was JJ or somebody else, that the memory within C-3PO is like the overview of the whole saga. So if you lose C-3PO's memories, then you lose all of that, like the crawl information, all mm. of the, the backstory of what's going on. But that's not true. R2-D2 is. He's the one who's there from the beginning and does not get his memory wiped because mm. nobody thinks to wipe the memory of a, an R2 unit. And while he does feel absent, he's still there in the uh, uh, Legacy Trilogy, which mm. I, I'm never going to call him the sequel trilogy, uh, unless I just want a quiet life. Um. <laughs> but, he, but R2 carries all of this information. He's like they're walking Wikipedia. Mm. He's the one who plugs into every computer that they come across when they need it to do something. Kenny Baker died the same year as Carrie. Yeah. But either way, I left it bittersweet but comforting. Like, they're back together. R2 has to start from scratch, but it's okay. They'll be all right. Again, I don't understand why that wasn't just the case. Yeah. Like, it's right there. But it just, it seems so cowardly to just do something pronouncedly dramatic and tragic and then walk walk it it back back within seconds. Within, it, it makes... Especially coupled with the the goofball dialogue throughout this, it makes things seem less important. It also doesn't help that the amazing John Williams wasn't really set a task of creating new themes. He just revisits old ones, and the only new theme is cloyingly sweet. Mm. There's no bitterness to it. There's no sadness to it, really. It's the... It's not even as powerful as the leaving Hogwarts. It's sweet, but it's it feels like there could have been more, more of a sustain.
I don't agree with the theory that death is the only thing that has weight, which I have seen people argue about, like, this is why Marvel doesn't mean anything to them, because death doesn't last. But you have to give people time to feel yeah. the consequences that you put in place. You can't just put a trampoline at the entrance to heaven. Back you go. <laughs> to wait for a woman of less discriminating tastes. <laughs> I in no way want to undersell the astonishing achievements of John Williams in music. In fact, if you've listened, I barely shut up about him. But The Force Awakens genuinely rivals, to my mind, The Empire Strikes Back and Revenge of the Sith, which has a really good score, for the standout favourite of mine, with Rey's theme maybe being my favourite that he's ever achieved. Now, Spence left the following in his cup, but I trimmed the two uses of the term force dyad. Thank you! From Kylo and Palpatine. (laughs) And you did that specifically at my request, because every time they use that word, I cringe. Ah, force dyad, something that's never been mentioned before and doesn't really come to anything. I don't mind the concept, but for the love of God, nobody uses the word dyad apart from couples therapists. It's a term that means a two-person relationship. That's all it means. As it's obscure. As I said, we established this immediately during the first teaser trailer where Andy Serkis, as Snoke, said, There has been an awakening. Have you felt it? The dark side. And the light. And then the Falcon comes soaring into view with Ray obviously being the opposing side. Like that's always been the case. Slapping a word on it is like the midichlorians of the Legacy Trilogy. Yeah, plus the fact it brings this whole sort of soulmate concept into being in a, a universe where it didn't need to be. Yeah. Everything around the context of it describes to us, without slapping a name on it, a strong bond between the two of these. We've, they, they, they're acting, their words, their physicality, yeah. the circumstances with which they are thrown together constantly reinforces this. Going, that's oh, a force diet, it's an ancient thing. It's like, no, your, your mumbo jumbo doesn't actually make, like, it's not emotionally relevant at this point. Don't cheapen this. Okay, now I'm going to ask you what removing Leia's death from the duel between Ray and Ben on the wreckage of the Death Star, what did that accomplish? Because now they don't feel her die, it's something else. 
it really intensified the emotional investment for me because there's no, I'm not gonna call it a distraction. That sense of Leia going, breaking into what's going on between the two of them. I can't really remember what it felt like to see it originally. What this achieved not having that there and having the turning point of when the conflict between them breaks and becomes something else. What was given space to breathe and really felt emphasised was this idea of Ben feeling that light side pull and trying to resist it because, like I said before, it's like he's, he's thrown so much down this dark side path that it, it, it's almost like going back to the good is going to result in him having to feel all of that shit that he did. And Ray is having this, this dark side sense in her that she's trying desperately to resist but finding that harder and harder. And the moment between them where he goes to attack her and now with the removal of that sort of them, them both feeling Leia go, he chooses to stop. Then she stabs him with he his He shows mercy, she shows wrath. Exactly. That's the point at which they kind of, they cross. Mm. But he brings himself back by almost allowing himself to be attacked by her. Mm. And then she brings herself back almost immediately. Oh, kind of like Luke did at the end of The Last Jedi, where he just sort of zones out and lets Kylo run in and slice him with that exact sword. Yeah. Knowing that this is leading him to his death. Yeah. Ray realises what she's done, but for her, that moment of realisation is just after she's struck the blow, rather than in his case, it was just before. And it's almost like there's this... This is, this is very much a, a reading rather than a this is in the text, but because it's all visual at this point, I can put whatever the hell I want on it, and I will. But it's the difference between the dark side and the light side. It's now, they are so close, you couldn't get a Rizzler between them. Rizzler are a brand of very thin cigarette papers. Whether you have the realisation the second before you do the terrible thing, or the second after you do the terrible thing, that's the moment where those two enmesh and overlap. Intent and action being so close together, and the impulse that you can't interrupt. He is able to interrupt it just in time. She's not. But she does have the power to fix the impulsively terrible thing that she's done. Yeah. And being able to fix the bad things you've done, or at least make amends or try to undo them or try to mitigate them, it, there needs to be, and I have said this so many times specifically about uh, Kylo's journey, the idea that he, uh, in the Colin Trevorrow version, he just dies a bitter, angry bastard who never repents. And it's like, okay, cool. What does that tell us about people who've done bad things? Mm, that would definitely be bad. But there's, there's echoes of this in his final moments. Yeah. And there's echoes of what Anakin wanted to learn. In, into this moment because Anakin was pulled to the dark side with promises of if somebody you love dies you can bring them back Ben is shown in this moment 
that that is possible. Effectively, he's he's dead. That blow Ray gives him is a killing blow. Yeah. But she is able to heal it before he is lost. And that's something that he then hangs on to for later. Yeah, and gives it back to her. Yeah. That thread of life. Absolutely. And that is actually gently underpinned as well by what I pointed out about BB-8. Mm. When Ray heals the worm, BB-8 talks to her afterwards and she explains to him what she did. And all right, yeah, it's ostensibly for an info dump so that the audience knows exactly what's happened there. But the last thing she says to him on the subject is, you would have done the same. Mm. And when they find... Dio, is it? Mm-hmm. Later on, BB-8. without his battery, effectively dead, yeah. BB-8 recharges him and brings him back to life. He is inspired by what he's seen Ray do to do the same for that little robot, and Ben is inspired by what he sees Ray do for him to do the same for her. And that is a huge theme about what this whole legacy trilogy is about. What we see others do inspiring us. Yeah. Also, as Sharon says, it harkens back to Anakin's turn. Only he sold out the Jedi, the Republic, Obi-Wan, Yoda, Padme, his unborn child, and every single youngling he murdered in exchange for supreme power. An inherently selfish move. He spent his whole career bitching about how he didn't have enough power, and to get it, he did the unthinkable. And while the most idealistic side of him framed this as to have the ability to stop people from dying, i.e. the people he loved, that's still, again, a selfish move to force them to stay with him. It was never about their happiness or he wouldn't have choked Padme. So as it transpires, you can bring people back from the dead, but it requires self-sacrifice. That's probably why the Sith are no good at it, and why seemingly the only person who's been able to fully pull it off is someone who gave their life. So yeah, that's very much in keeping with my approval of characters who are self-sacrificing. That does make me feel a little bit less pissed off that we lost Ben and thus the connection to any way of balancing the Force so that anger can be incorporated as not wholly negative, with fear being forgivable and selfishness being part of human nature that you have to deal with as opposed to simply rising above monk-like all the time. Kylo takes more from her. Rey is almost gone, drained of life. She summons all her strength, reaches out. With the last of herself, she offers him her hand. Ben, please. Interior Eclipse Destroyer Bridge Space. Leia feels the disturbance. It pains her. Into the vastness of space, she says her son's name. Ben. Oh, no, so are they doing the Leia Force connection thing from the Rise of Skywalker? I hope not. Interior, Temple of Mortis, night. Then Kylo hears his mother's voice, carried by the Force. Leia. Ben. He stops, hearing her, feeling her close. Come back. Come home. Something happens to Kylo when he hears his mother's voice. Okay, yeah, they're doing the scene. Leia speaks to her son through the Force. Help us. Kylo feels the very thing that destroyed Anakin. 
but doesn't make him feel weak. So here's my beef with this. The writer's interviews after the release of The Rise of Skywalker confirmed that when Leia was connecting to her son through the Force, she was somehow using an incredible amount of Force power to magically awaken the good in him. This is terrible because it doesn't make any sense, and also it suggests that Leia could have done this at any time, and why didn't she? But the bigger reason it's terrible is it removes Kylo Ren's agency from his own redemption arc, rendering it dumb and boring. A Kylo Ren redemption arc ought to happen across a greater span of time so you, the audience, can kind of follow him and understand his thoughts and feelings as they're changing. Like, see the actor portray it. In this Trevorrow script, I don't think that Leia is using magic powers to turn him good. I think a different stupid thing is happening. In this, she's just talking to him through the Force. At a key moment, she's telling him to come home. You know, that thing Han Solo did. It didn't work out so well for him. So why is it this easy? Like, 30 seconds ago, he was apparently fully ready and willing to murder Rey via magic life force sucking. But Leia talks to him, and then he feels love. At least I assume he's feeling love, because like, he thinks that love is what destroyed Anakin, right? I mean, technically, I think it was respiratory failure when his suit stopped working. Maybe Kylo is feeling that. He looks at Rey's outstretched hand and takes it. The living force flows back into her. Both light and dark swirl within Rey as Kylo is reduced to an empty shell, a man without power, a frightened boy. Kylo and Rey collapse into one another, each propping the other up on their knees. Rey is close to him now, their foreheads touching. He is weakened, spent, in the last moments of his life. Solana. Rey is stunned to hear her name, distant like a memory. Your name. <gasps> last breath. Ray Solana. Those words are Ben Solo's last. Well, that's just awful. I don't know how this is meant to offer any closure for either of them. Also, Solana is a bad name. It sounds like someone took Solo and Organa and just combined them. I kind of feel like Kylo Ren just made it up. He's doing that thing where you just look at two things in the room and he's like, um, myself? Uh, my mom's disembodied voice. Ray watches the light dim in his eyes, but it is the light. Goodbye, Ben. With a look that could be perceived as love, Ben Solo dies. Allow me to look at this whole screenplay with a look that could be perceived as disappointment. Ray releases her hold, collapses, barely alive herself. They've fought to the death. In what sense? Okay, there's a lot of life force sucking in both versions of episode 9, but at least in The Rise of Skywalker, you can kind of hand wave it. It definitely feels in that one like Kylo Ren didn't have to go all the way dead to bring Rey back. Because we saw when she healed the snake that you can just give a little bit of your life energy without giving all of it. And presumably afterward, it like replenishes itself over time, like when you donate blood or something. But it's like, okay, I'll just presume that since she was all the way dead, bringing her back from the dead is a much larger effort and might require the exchange of a life for a life. In this one though, I'm just at a loss. Kylo wanted to suck life out of things because he got Sith face cancer, which I assume eventually would have killed him. But he already sucked the life out of that big old pig and Torvalum. I'm pretty sure he arrived on Mortis with over a half a tank. I kind of thought he was just draining Rey out of like, a lust for power and so that he could kill her, and not because he still needed all of that life energy just for his face. So okay, thus far we are operating on a surplus of life. Meanwhile, Ray is on the ground, weakened and near death, but not all the way dead, so surely he could have given like some of her life back without killing himself completely. But then he gives the life back to Ray, and he dies. 
But then Ray also is still weak and near death as though it did nothing. So where is all this life going? Are they just extremely sloppy about transferring it and it's just spilling everywhere? Like me pouring my blue milk from my saucepan into my glass? Anyway, back on Coruscant. The original script by Trevorrow called for Finn to uh, lead a stormtrooper revolution. That's one of the, th the dropped threads that I really wish had been continued and now they can't. They can mention Finn at some later date and maybe have Janna or someone else lead a Stormtrooper revolution. Uh, but like they ended up doing the least expensive version of that by just having Janna describe a feeling that she and a whole bunch of other Stormtroopers decided they weren't going to shoot civilians. Mm. But that actually undermines that idea a little oh, yeah? bit because, not massively, I'm not like totally opposed to it or anything, but... By having it that way, oh, it just came down to instinct. The Force just inspired us all simultaneously to mm. lay down our weapons. You lose that thread of them being inspired by each other. Yeah. Rose was was there in The Last Jedi. Like she considered him to be a hero. Uh, so it, it feels like they were, they were heading there naturally. But also there's, like, there's a whole bunch of stormtroopers in red that are Sith troopers... And are, are not the First Order. The film never in any way delineates the difference between these two factions. They should have been fighting each other at some point. And at some point, Finn could have ended up leading the First Order troops and just getting them to join the Resistance. And a fight for their lives. But... It was right there. They ended up doing a cheapy version of that with... Uh, I mean, John Boyega was happy that it was uh, too black heroes leading a horse charge on this starship mm. and yeah you know that's, that's I fine. did love the idea of them using the the animal mount mm. and that meaning that the speeder bikes couldn't be interfered with and, and um, have their signals jammed mm. but again removing Leia from the fight changed the dynamic because it always seemed like well for a start they were stretching it Carrie never filmed anything that was to do with badgering Ben at that last second. And it, there's just ever so slight hints of her saying, hey, Ben, Ben, and then him going, what, mom, what? And then Ray stabbing him while he's distracted. <laughs> and then Luke gives some half-assed story about how she foresaw that at the end of her Jedi training, her son would die. So that makes everything that just happened make sense. Does it? you're reaching too hard it's so much better to not overly complicate Leia's death sometimes people die and it's a tremendous inconvenience Carrie Fisher is the best example the world will ever know she would I'm sure love to go down in history as a tremendous inconvenience but let's just remember the good thing shall we <laughs> this is another Spence edit which I completely approved of completely remove the destruction of Kajimi and the resistance's reaction if you remember there was like a, a a cannon strapped to the bottom of this super star destroyer Ujima flip and it destroys the whole planet and it's like another death star another death star and then at the end, they meet a fleet of solid gold Death Stars, like in Futurama. And this helps us imagine the Final Order as an Imperial stockpile, since it was the only glimpse into them before the First Order arrives to help. It avoids yet another planet destruction, and it generally smooths things over. It reduces the amount of movies in this nine-movie Nuftology that have a Death Star in it from 
if we're including the holographic Death Star plans in uh, the second film, Attack of the Clones, and if we include the portable Death Star they bring in The Last Jedi to bash their way into the uh, Rebel base, seven. The only two that don't have a Death Star, Phantom Menace, Empire Strikes Back. Every other one got a Death Star of some kind. So we reduce that from seven to just six. Also, it just makes the Empire seem so friggin' stupid and just have the same idea over and over again. Like They are stupid and it is the same idea over and over again. I know, again. I know. The, 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 the prequel trilogy, they're thinking about making a Death Star. Yeah. The beginning of Star Wars, they've made a Death Star. Return of the Jedi, it's like, okay, okay, so I took a bath on that one. How about we try it again, but bigger? What will bigger accomplish? I don't know. Bigger explosion when the rebels destroy us. What's it called? The Third Reich? Yep. And then the First Order are like, okay, same idea, same idea. Bigger still. And it can destroy all kinds of planets from a great, 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 great distance. But then again, I mean, I suppose that does underline that Nazis are incredibly unimaginative. What's your idea? Big gun? Okay, cool. You know that thing about evil will win because good is stupid? Other no, way around, it's dude. the other way around. <laughs> or, or more just, uh, good isn't necessarily going to win because evil is stupid, but evil is going to lose maybe as well as good because evil is stupid mm. and unimaginative and boring and repetitive. And again, if you look at the Emperor's fucking plan here, it's just Return of the Jedi. But the circumstances have changed, which is why it bothered me so much that it was like, strike me down with all of your hatred, and yet again, everything that I want to come to pass will happen. Did you plan to get thrown down the shaft, you asshole? Also, I've been getting into the now non-canon legends of the pre-prequel era, and I went back to the Throne trilogy, and I'm almost finished on that for the first time ever. I could never get beyond that first book originally. But all these warships that Palpatine has here, that's the Katana fleet. It feels like they asked the question, what comes after Return of the Jedi, since we kind of did that with Last Jedi. And the answer is Dark Empire, the 1991 Dark Horse comic series by Tom Veitch. In that story, set 10 years after the Battle of Yavin, so six years after Return of the Jedi, one year after the Throne trilogy, a cloned Emperor resurfaces. He summons Luke Skywalker and makes a bargain with him, you strike me down, and we will become one, and then you can control this fleet. It's the same thing, it's just that in Dark Empire they do the work to make Luke slipping down towards the dark side feel like he might actually accept it. Whereas here in Rise of Skywalker, it feels like they've gone, hey, we're just gonna take this beef, we know that you like beef, right? So we're gonna throw it into this smoothie, and it doesn't work. And then they ask why you're vomiting. Working in secret, I have created weapons such as the galaxy has never seen. These world devastators are utterly invincible. They are invulnerable to attack. Even if every member of the crew were destroyed, the ships themselves would continue in their destructive purpose, directed by a special master control program which I maintain. It is your destiny, my friend. To succeed your father, to wield my discipline over the worlds that have betrayed me. Never! And the stroke of your lightsaber might help the cause of billions, but will it mean the end of the dark side? 
Strike. Everything I am cries out for me to strike. Is it so difficult to decide, my son? Surely you know that if you strike me down in anger, I will live again. Perhaps I will even live as you. No! <laughs> you strike the throne, but not the man. You miss by inches, but you miss on purpose. Wise in the ways of the Force. You have achieved control. You are no longer the impulsive youth at war with your own anger. Excellent. I will not kill you. But you can still conquer me by learning the secrets of the dark side. We both know there is no other way for you. The secrets of the dark side. Those whispers. That's the dark side. The seduction of its power. But maybe for once, it speaks the truth. Maybe I must challenge the dark side from within. Decision, young Skywalker. Now! I. I. Yes. My father's destiny is my own. Yeah, that comic was written 33 years ago. It's very moody and atmospheric to read. It's also super serious, so it never really feels like Star Wars to me. And that is true of a lot of the EU. They just, they don't have that chemistry, spark and humor of the central trios of the original and sequel trilogy. And the story still needed a lot of work to bring it up to the standard of, say, The Last Jedi. But there are enough solid lines in the dialogue that lay the characters bare so that you at least understand why they're doing what they're doing. And it would appear that the secret with this particular edit is to remove the dumb lines so that you can infer from the actions and physicality what's actually going on. These poor actors. And also, and I know I've come back to this in other stuff that we've talked about before. When your plan is to become ultimate leader of the entire galaxy, show me your administrative aims. What are your policies? Because once you are leader of the entire galaxy, do you know what you're going to have to do? Lead. Loads of admin. Yep. I don't know. He, he led the galaxy for nine, 23 years and he sucked at it. Yes, he did because his main aim was to dismantle the governing body. Yeah. Took him 19 years to dismantle the Senate. Happened off camera. Exactly. We're gonna drain the swamp of the Senate. Very bad swamp. Corruption everywhere. Jedi, Chancellor Valorum, crooked Mon Mothma. Lock her up. Another thing Spence did, remove the line about the Holdo maneuver. If it is something legitimate, then someone who lives in that universe shouldn't have the same misconception as we may. It's like they had a giant checklist of, here's everything that's pissed off Reddit. We've got to make sure we smooth over all of these. Ray from nowhere? No, sacred bloodline. Also, if it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing that's never going to happen, why would they name a maneuver after it? 
like the Heimlich maneuver. That was a one-time thing. The Heimlich maneuver gets done all the time. That's why it's called the maneuver. So you kind of screw your argument by calling it the Holdo maneuver. Indeed. Anyway, in the cinema and the HAL 9000 edit and Spence's edit, when Luke lifts the X-Wing out of the water at long last, Yoda's music played. It's the most obvious music to play at that stage. He's finally reached that point. However, you know me, and I don't always want to go for the most obvious music. Instead, I change that for the crescendoing, triumphant Star Wars theme from the trailer that was criminally never employed in this film. It was right there, John. I'll play that for you now, folks, but I'll tell you, watching it in action kind of moved. I cried both times. Yeah. Once when it was just in the editing bay. Yeah. It was the last night of her training. Leia told me that she had sensed the end of her Jedi path. She surrendered her saber to me and said that one day, it would be picked up again by someone who would finish her journey. A thousand generations live in you now. We'll always be with you. But this is your fight. I can't get there. I don't have the Wayfinder. I destroyed Ren's ship. You have everything you need. Two were made. One addendum to something I was talking about earlier regarding 3PO's memories. After recording this show, during the edit, I found from the uh, creator of that Finn and Rose sneaking around the Imperial facility opening, Job Willens, 3PO's prequel memories return. And I thought, okay, which works better? His absence of saying anything, because I've kind of had to take the comedy out, all this, which gives us a sense of displacement and tragic comedy. There's an incoming destroyer. Gotta go now. Did we get it? Babu? Yep, Android is ready. The Emperor's Wayfinder is in the Imperial Vault at Delta 36, transient 936, bearing 32 on a moon in 
Enemy handle system. I'm placing these droids in your care. 3PO? The maker? Have protocol droids mind white. What? The Andor system. Your friend's on that sky trash? I guess he is. Ah, yes. It is all coming back to me now. Anakin Skywalker. Okay, that's going to be a problem. Hello, I bubble freak. The boy who would become Darth Vader. It is a thrilling tale. 3PO, move your metal ass. We're almost there. Turmoil had engulfed the Station of trade routes to outlying star systems was in dispute. Oh. BBA, come on! I shut down the impeders. You've got seconds. There she is. She's a survivor. Thus began a love story that would lead to a secret wedding on Naboo. It was so romantic. Did we ever find his volume control? Ah, to at last I found you. That was uncalled for. And you know what? I'm putting that in. That's in my final edit. This one's very important, and it was left in by Spence. Maybe the dumbest line. This wasn't dumb of Spence to leave it in, but for me, it drove me insane. Maybe the dumbest line in any Star Wars movie ever. Dumber than, okay, let's try spinning. That's a good trick. Dumber than, yippee. Dumber than, icky, icky, purr. Or, Dumber than, I don't like sand. Only rivaled by, to be angry is to be human, considering the wise leader that that line comes from. You gotta look at who's saying what lines. Little Anakin Skywalker can say whatever the hell he likes. When we were his age, we were picking our nose and wiping it on the sofa. The line I needed to trim was Palpatine telling Rey that once she kills him, his spirit will jump into her body that just kind of undoes everything because it leaves Ray with multiple options. She could be like, right, so how do I have to kill you? Does it have to be with rage? Or could I just like kill you knowing that you definitely, just like this guy's gotta die? Can I poison you and then run away really quick? Can I kill you with righteous indignation but not rage? Can I um, just pop you on the head? So uncle, I've been thinking, it's only a matter of time before I run into Azula again. I'm going to need to know more advanced firebending if I want to stand a chance against her. I know what you're going to say. She's my sister and I should be trying to get along with her. No. She's crazy and she needs to go down. Can I kill you with kindness? <laughs> Can I sit here reading books to you? No. He says, I want you to kill me, ascend to the throne, then you can take over the fleet and tell them to stop. And that, for Ray, who's been like, oh my god, I keep seeing these visions of me on the throne, is like, is this it? Is this, is this what this has all been leading to? You know, he's actually just, he's saying, I want you to be in control. He's not saying, you'll be in the sunken place while I ride around in that hot bod of yours. <laughs> but I mean, that's his plan. He's looking at this lemon of a body he's in and going, look at that. I would love to be inside that. <laughs> He's a disgusting God. old pervert. It's so creepy. I know. It's disgusting. But here's the thing. It's still his plan. He's just not telling her. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He's still like, either you strike me down with rage and I jump inside you, or I'll just suck the soul straight out but of you. But here's the thing. He never said to Luke, strike me down in anger 
and I get to ride around as a Jedi Knight. Woo-hoo. No, because that was written by Lawrence Kasdan. What he said was, strike me down with all of your hatred and your journey towards the dark side will be complete, knowing that Vader would defend him, that Luke would kill his broken old thing of a father mm-hmm. and would be kind of the new hot boy for the uh, for Palpatine to have around doing his dirty work because he'd already be turned to the dark side. Mm-hmm. So Vader's job there was to die. That was something. It doesn't make any sense. If Palpatine's like, strike me down, I'll jump into your body, we will become one. And it's like, I kind of feel like we'll become you and I will be fuck all to do with anything. Yeah. So I had to lose that line. And the way it now works is chillingly effective, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Also, I cut out the bit where he was like, let's hear it from all my homies. And all of those Sith dudes in the back are like, oh, yeah, Palpatine, he's our dude. Like, they're there, they're humming and chanting. And it's like, are those all clones of Palpatine? But there isn't that bit where he's like sort of asking everyone to do a Mexican way for him. There are many, many reasons why that scene with the Sith crowd bugged the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Not, least of which, not least of which is... I know you've kind of said, well, that's prequel shit, that doesn't matter. But I've always been quite partial to the idea of always two there are a master and an apprentice. (laughs) The idea being that the Sith are so fucking bad, like, as in evil, Mm -hmm. that they can't cooperate well enough to grow their ranks beyond two. There's one... He trains somebody else because he's really old and bitter and mean and lonely. And, and like someone... old, old bastards, he gets lonely. Exactly. However, the inevitability is that that apprentice is going to stab him in the back. And he knows that. And that, that dynamic just has always made a lot of sense to me in terms of how the Sith... Operate. And this is why you never win, because you always stab each other in the back. Precisely. So if there were that many Sith over the generations who'd been stabbed in the back by their old apprentices, they'd fucking hate each other! They'd all be stood there in the crowd going, why'd you put me next to him? People who hate people, come together! Yeah. <laughs> and they are all jostling around in the same robe going... It's that. It just there's there's a there's a herd mentality about crowds yep. that just doesn't fit for me with either Sith or Jedi, mm. frankly. Also, that always two there are does not work with all of the Inquisitors. No. Those are effectively the Sith Padawans that they are forcing to stay low and depowered. They still want to get up to the rank of Darth Maul Sith Lord. Yep, but they can't get near enough to the top guy to stab him in the back. Yeah. And frankly, if stabbing your master in the back means that he steals your body, that's probably not the best thing either. Right. The fight, which includes Ray and Ben, now resurrected. The Han Solo scene was slightly extended just to give it a little bit of extra drama. Beautifully done. Still wonderful moment. Best part of the film. Either cut. But the actual fight is quite visually confusing because it's in the dark with disco lights flickering and they both have blue lightsabers. 
Blue, it's the colour of being a good Jedi. And I just thought, it's Leia's saber. Would she really just have a blue? If anything, she'd have the consular one and say, yeah, you take this blue one back. So she'd go with green. In which case she'd be fighting, like, Rey should have a Leia lightsaber that's green. However, somebody named Skenera managed to put together a kind of magenta-violet blade for Leia's lightsaber in particular, which was used by Revan 100 in his Rise of Skywalker Refined Edition. So I took those frames and spliced them in here and in the flashback when we, when Luke's talking about him and Leia when she was training. So suddenly Leia's color becomes this beautiful pinkish violet. And that completely changes the dynamic of this scene because you always know visually who Ray is and where she is and using that saber and who Ben is and where he is. And they actually seem more unified despite the fact that they aren't holding the same blade cut. It's the same as with Obi-Wan versus uh, Anakin at the end of Revenge of the Sith. Now, symbolically speaking, the wrongness of two blue Jedi blades clashing does mean something, but it's way more visually appealing and easy to see if Anakin's got a red saber. Mm. Otherwise, from a distance, over time, what I'm seeing is two pale blue propellers on an orange background. I don't know who to root for anymore. I just want it to stop. Which steps upon the extensive physical training of Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen for that fight. They worked their asses off for that, but there's so much fucking CG everywhere that the bits of what is real are like specks on the screen eventually. Also, also, again, this is a castle of their first fight when Ren had a red blade and Ray had a blue one. Castling, as in switching places. Perfect. Yeah. Beautiful. So, yeah, all the times when the Leia lightsaber is used, it is this beautiful violet colour. Now, in doing that, I also unavoidably had to re-add... Force ghosts, because some digital wizards have managed to splice in the spectral force ghosts of Obi-Wan and Old Luke and Yoda and Anakin in the background behind Rey, helping her with the Palpatine fight. Now, Spence's choice was to actually take the Jedi voices out of this sequence. It always came off like the lowest of low-budget endgame on your left portal scenes anyway. You've just got a whole bunch of people talking all at once and you you can't tell who Luminara Underly is there or who Barris Offy is. Like, that's really cool that they got the voice actors for Ahsoka in. But also the fact that they don't show up as Force Ghosts makes me feel like Disney, much like with keeping Chewie alive and 3PO alive and having a... Added it in later. Added it... Well, just, no... They wanted to be able to not say for certain that all of these characters were dead. Because mm. if they're communicating by just speech and all you're looking at is blackness, mm. then technically that could mean that Ahsoka is still alive 30 years after the events of Ahsoka. And I get it, but that's an underwhelming sequence. But I didn't want to step on Spencer's point, which is that Rey needs to be able to do this on her own. So... He added extra shots here when Ray's lying on her back and what spurs her into getting up is the little touches of hands to the people that she's met and the little connections that she's made. And I thought, that's brilliant. We can do more with that as well. And especially since the Force Ghosts were now added back in, 
I thought, okay, so let's retrace Ray's journey, not necessarily in linear fashion, but we'll bring in her communicating with Han, her and Finn together, watching Han say, The Jedi were real. I used to wonder about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo jumbo. A magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. Crazy thing is, it's true. Reuniting with Finn at the end of The Last Jedi. Meeting Luke and holding out the saber. Luke teaching her about the Force and her feeling that on Arcto Island. Rey training with Leia so that I could actually use a few shots from the beginning of the film that they had done to bring Carrie back into the film at a point where her being a memory actually had an impact and resonance. And I wanted this to feel respectful and the right use of Carrie Fisher in this film and the illustration of the two of them holding each other just that embrace is wonderfully resonant but also the folks who made the digital force ghosts all pointing their hands seem to neglect Carrie Fisher and uh, as Leia in that particular crowd so I was like this will not stand I've got to somehow get her in but then where do we see Leia really using the force so there's like a little flash of Leia's face from when she was in space in The Last Jedi. And the screen is bathed in pinkish violet light because that is now a color we can associate with her. And then that's at the time when Palpatine's skin starts being flayed off. And just before his head explodes, you get a little flash of her outstretched hand also bathed in pink light, implying that the killing blow was struck by Leia. And she's like, oh, fuck you, pal. However, because Ray has to do the getting up, has to do the pulling all of this energy together and crossing those two blades, which now feel like she's embracing both sides of herself because you've got the two colors that she's actually going to take this in a new direction. And because we've had this build up with everything that Ray has become, everything she was before, I even used that shot in the Force Awakens trailer that was never in the final film of Ray polishing that bit of engine and sort of thinking and feeling something. And I'm just like, she's feeling the Force at that point. Why was that never used? Well, it is in this. Who are you? I'm no one. I was raised to do one thing. But I've got nothing to fight for. Nothing will stand in our way. What you started. There are stories about what happened. It's true. All of it. The dark side. Jedi. 
force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Still my favorite trailer of all time. And while the Jedi are helping her, it feels like they're just there to support her just enough and that the real power behind it is her opposing Palpatine. Spence very cleverly managed to get her to not say, I am all the Jedi, just, and I am a Jedi. Just like she knows this about herself. It's like Neo when he realizes he is in fact the one. It's also, it also reminds me of The Last Airbender, Aang meeting all of the past avatars. Yeah, very much a Korra and Aang yeah, it's, it's previous not, avatars Yeah, it's thing. not necessarily that they are specifically all lending their physical strength to her. It's just that knowledge that she has this lineage that is of the Force, not of blood, that goes back into... Uh, the the history of, of person kind. Now, after this, uh, at the end, there's that scene where all the good guys are getting back together and they're hugging. And uh, one of the, at least one of the re-edits of this said that it took out the lesbian kiss. It didn't say why, but uh, I've heard people complain that this is just pandering to the woke crowd. And I thought, how can I make this gayer? How can I make this scene more gay? And they... If you remember, that, there's that bit with, which is quite embarrassing where uh, Poe, the vision of masculinity, that this frustrated John Boyega and uh, Oscar Isaac, who really kind of wanted to get behind the whole Finn and Poe power couple thing going on. I got to talk to you about I something. I got to talk to you about something. I can't do this alone. I need you in command with me. But this droid has it. Thank you. I appreciate that. General. General. This droid has a ton of information about it. Wait, what, Coneface? I am Dio. Sorry, Dio. Uh, but Disney were like, no, no, no. We've got you a girlfriend and we've got you a girlfriend. So you get a straight your way to the left and to the right and stay apart. Um, so the Zori bit, he's sort of like, hey, how's it going? And she's like, mm, not like that. And it just drags for a little bit too long and it's sort of in the middle. I moved that to the beginning of this scene and it was just a sort of respectful nod between the two of them. Mm. And then at the point where the force thing da, 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 rises up, that's where the lesbian kiss is now. Ah, and it's like, nice. great, cool, thank you. <laughs> then you get uh, Chewbacca and Mars together and he gets his medal. Like, I left that in because like, I needed this scene to really feel like it wasn't trimmed down too hard. Mm. One clever edit I saw had Billy D. Williams Lando looking across originally at Janna, but now at Mars, and she's like, hey. And he's like, maybe, actually. It's like, oh, those two wrinkled prunes deserve each other. Though I do also like the idea of him helping Janna to find who she is. It's a worthy cause for Lando to devote himself to for a bit after this. But there's a vagueness to that scene where it's like, hang on, is he suggesting he lost a daughter and she lost a father? Is he hitting on her? Too late, let's move on. What? No, no, I need some more definition. Fuck it. This is fast becoming the Denis Villeneuve cut, which is all just visuals and sound. But then after that, Finn and Poe come together and properly man-hug each other, and it really does feel like these were the two they were seeking out. Yeah. 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 That medal, by the way, I know, like, there was the whole thing about, oh, yay, finally Chewie gets a medal. But that's Han's medal, yeah. right? So the idea being that 
when Han died, that went to Leia. Now Leia's gone too. It goes to Chewie. No one's ever really gone. Another neat thing that Spence did was to move the scene with Chewie, Poe and Finn playing the hollow chess, which is at the beginning of the film, all the way through to the end of the movie, to imply that they are on the Falcon when Rey touches down on Tatooine, which I, I love. loved that. The idea that Absolutely she's bringing this new that. family with her. She doesn't yeah. have to say her name is Skywalker because what's in a name? Yeah, and, and it, it gives a sense of their adventure is going to continue. Yeah. They are going to go off and do other things. Yeah. I feel like this is a, a Rey going off alone and solitary is a holdover from uh, the... Trevorrow cut, where Ray was blinded, like Neo in the third Matrix film, and then went off alone and may have died, and we don't know if Ray's alive or not. And it's like, Colin, what the fuck Good are you doing? God, Trevorrow, what the hell? <sighs> anyway, they asked him, they brought him in. I know. And then the I Book know. of Henry came out, and uh, Kathleen Kennedy and others were like, I've made a huge mistake. Another thing that I absolutely love, and uh, the FX here was by John H., the ghostly visage of a redeemed Ben Solo now accompanies the Skywalker twins during the final scene. Why wasn't that there to begin with? I have no idea. There's a space! There is a gap right there! You'd Like, even in the cinema, I was staring at it thinking someone else is going to appear in that gap. If you're really doing Return of the Jedi, why take that bit out? Yeah. Huh? Mm-hmm. <sighs> The thing that bugged me so much at the time was I really wanted to see the idea of the Force being redefined and for them to be able to move forward with, okay, here's, here's the new version of Star Wars. We're going to kind of change, change the script and incorporate all of these passionate feelings into the, Je the new Jedi code mm -hmm. and we're going to be something beyond the Jedi. But Disney shat their pants at the very idea of making this more complex and just went, no, it's good and bad, black and white. Oh, also... And let's also never go one second beyond the point of the end of Rise of Skywalker. All of our entertainment now is backwards is, facing. Yeah. We're going to be it's looking at the Clone Wars stuff. You all like Clone Wars kids? And uh, obviously the Clone Wars kids are now older and they get to see Ahsoka, you know, played... In extremely dull fashion by uh, a seemingly half-asleep Rosario Dawson in one of the most humdrum, nothing's going on here, of all Star Warses ever. Mm. It makes Clone Wars look like a, a you know a super action-packed thrill ride. Meanwhile, the last four episodes of that animated show put out in 2020 gave Ahsoka a proper ending. So it's so weird that they can't do something like that in this kind of live-action sequel to Rebels, question mark? And as we've already said, the ending has been reworked to remove the old lady and any dialogue regarding Ray's name. A subtle shift in colour pulls Ray's attention to the binary sunsets, which she stands and goes to look at. She then sees the Skywalker Force ghosts and turns her attention back to the sunsets, which leads to the credits. And in the credits, this was petty of me, but I did it anyway. I struck Chris Terrio's name from the record... Because everything great in this film is despite his key role on the project, not because of it. You know, all of that practical stuff, that wasn't him. Daisy Ridley and uh, Adam Driver's intense acting without saying anything because they were having to use their bodies because all the words were stupid. That's despite Chris Terrio. Mm. 
I mean, he's a punching bag that I can point at and go, you're everything wrong with the rise of but Skywalker. I mean, There's so much wrong on an executive level. Yeah, there, there is. there are words in this film that are good. There are some exchanges and speeches that, that work. Mm. And ultimately, they were either written by Chris Terrio or Colin Trevorrow. Mm. It's a CT either way. <laughs> You pointed out, did they get Chris Terrio because they had monogrammed bathroom stuff? <laughs> and they were like, oh, I'm not paying for that again. Get someone named CT. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems unlikely, but... They could have gone with my uncle, Clive Towler. I mean, he hates Star Wars and is okay. decidedly right-wing. I was just going to say, could he have done a worse job? Well, feasibly. Um, maybe. But if he'd just handed in empty blank pages, they probably could have made up their own better story on the spot. So, yeah, uh, the end result of this is that I'm not in pain anymore. Every time I'd look back on the end of the Legacy trilogy, I was like, well, I'm just going to have to be happy enough with episodes seven and eight because nine, I just, it doesn't feel right. I can headcanon it out. I don't know. Like, it was always going to, how is it going to affect future Star Wars? Difficult to see. Always in motion is the future. Mm. And it can't really just be uh, reactive. They can't just go, well, the focus group said that uh, they really, really liked Baby Yoda, so we're doing a Baby Yoda movie. Actually, it's a lot like that. Twitter isn't even called Twitter anymore. So when people were retweeting loads of Baby Yoda stuff, like the world's already changed and moved on and been despoiled by its own mad crap emperor. But being able to move on and move forwards from this and feel like I have been able to help contribute to and it really was just a last minute like a little couple of extra things like so much of this work was already done by Hal 9000 by Spence and by a whole bunch of digital artists who work magic that I couldn't all I did was just nudge it ever so slightly further away from the version of the film that really bugged me but now this is a third film I can watch and like it's the weakest of the three but it's not painful and I would love it if the guys who hate The Last Jedi were able to watch a version as subtly changed as this that they're happy with. I mean, there are versions of it that exist where Luke doesn't die at the end. And then there was a re-edited version of Rise of Skywalker that de-ghosted him so that he was definitely alive and real. And when he walked out of the fire. Yeah. They also William. removed uh, the, uh, I think they may have edited the flames out or something. Okay. Spence removed the line about, you've got to take care of this lightsaber, because that was a line clearly there as the checklist for they were so pissed off that Luke threw that lightsaber behind him, as though it was nothing. That's the point of The Last Jedi. He's discarding the most sacred of relics that we think is really, really important, because he's like, no, in that direction lies ruination. I'm not doing it again. And then by the end, he sees the validity of it. He does pick it up. He picks up the ghost of that lightsaber because it's already been destroyed. So yeah, uh, that is how I managed to kind of square away a thorn that's been in my side for a long, long time now. And it's been the most positive thing about 2024 that I've experienced so far. So we'll be back talking about something Star Wars related at some point in the future with clearer heads and a fresher spirit, eagerly awaiting the return of Rey, if not her found family. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And the, the Force, Force will be, be with, with you, you. Always. always.
School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 top-tier sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Burns, Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Pohlmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayu, Sarah Montgomery, Kat Esman, and a special welcome back to the Patreon for Bridget Bacala. I definitely took this to mean that he had gotten Snoke to where he is, like maybe set him up in his position of authority, or he was his master and trained him or something. But then the camera pans past this test tube thing where he is currently in the process of growing two more Snokes, and you're like, oh, 
He, he literally made Snoke. So, okay, why did Palpatine make Snoke? He said he has been every voice inside Kylo Ren's head for his whole life. And while he's doing it, he's mimicking the voices of Snoke and Vader. So, like, was he puppeteering Snoke? And that was his voice? Certainly the voices that were in Kylo's head turning him to the dark side were his voice, but then was when Snoke the man was talking, was that also his voice? How in control was he of the dialogue? If his ultimate goal was to turn Ben Solo to the dark side and he was already doing the Vader voice in his head and then he succeeded, why did he need Snoke? Why did he need a puppet thing that looks like Snoke and is named Snoke? You mean to tell me that when Palpatine needed to create a creature who could take over control of a government without anyone becoming suspicious and then win over the trust and affection of a little boy, the best he could come up with was this? Hello, little boy. My name is Papa Snoke. When does he release the Snokes into the world? Do they start out that shriveled or does he wait for them to get as shriveled as possible, like a pickle? Do they live out their lives outside of the tube or does he always deploy them fully formed? And why did he make more? What are they going to do for him at this point?